Now, God doesn't want any of you to go there. And if you go there and you spend an eternity in hell, it will be no one's fault but your own. Because God has made a way of escape, and it is through Jesus Christ. You have to decide today, is he a deceiver? Is he deceived? Or is he deity? There is no middle ground. You cannot say that he is just a good man or a great prophet. You should either stone him as a blasphemer or fall at his feet and worship and serve him as Lord God. It's the only choice he gives you. It's an important choice. It's the most significant decision you will ever make in life because what you do with him will determine what God will do with you. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, A Deceiver, Deranged, or Deity. Before we conclude our sermon today, Pastor Carl will address the three actions that Christ takes confirming that He is the promised Messiah. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. The argument of this gospel is that you can only be saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. As Paul will argue to the Galatian church, if a man can be saved by his deeds, Christ died in vain. And would you please also note the tense of eternal life. Not you will have, but he that believes has eternal life. These dear Christian people who say that you can lose eternal life have missed it. Eternal life is not simply a place. It is a relationship with God, as John 17, 3 states. It's something I can have today. He that believes has right now eternal life. How can you lose something that's eternal? That's an oxymoron. And so we who believe in the Lord Jesus do not have to wait until the the dead are arraigned before the Supreme Court of the universe to find out what the verdict will be. It is very clear. He who believes will not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. But for the non-Christian, oh, his judgment is ahead. For us, it's behind us. Now, those are three claims that he makes. Secondly, this morning, I want you to notice three actions that he takes. He doesn't just make claims. He's going to take some actions as well. Number one, I want you to see he has the power of life in his hands. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear shall live. Now, what does Christ mean in verse 25 when he says an hour is coming and now is? You might want to circle those words, now is, because they are key to understanding the verse. John is writing about a coming hour. He's going to explain that to us in verse 28, when the dead of all time will be raised. But he's also speaking about an hour that now is. So there is an hour that now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and come to life. That's something that happens today. It's called being born again. When God knocks at your heart's door and you hear the gospel and you open your heart to him by trusting in him as your personal Lord in Christ, then you have life. He speaks 
life to that which is spiritually dead. All of us are born into this world physically alive, spiritually dead. And that's why in the Bible we are compared to a corpse. A lost sinner is as lifeless and as helpless as a corpse. Now, it doesn't matter how well the undertaker may prepare the corpse. And no corpse is deader than another corpse. If you're dead, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 and verse 1. And so today when the sinner hears the word of God and it pokes and pricks on the heart and they say, yes, Lord Jesus, and they embrace him, they have new life and our eternal destiny is changed. So he says in verse 26, for just as the father has life in himself, even so, he, the Father, gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Now, remember the miracle at the pool of Bethesda, where he gives us a sign. Remember, he uses this word in John's Gospel for miracle, sign, Samion. It's a specialized word for miracle. It means a miracle with a message. So John selects seven miracles because each miracle has a message about the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, here is this man at the pool of Bethesda, crippled for 38 years by his sin. And it's a reminder that we are crippled by our sin. And the Lord speaks and he hears the word and instantly he is healed. Christ can do that. Why? Because he has life in himself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Not only though does he have life, he gives life. He is the life giver. Hey, this is a tremendous claim. Because it is abundantly clear in the Old Testament that only God has life in himself. It was God who breathed into Adam and made him a living soul. So God is described in the Old Testament as the fountain of life, as the path of life, as the preserver of life. And so, like the Father, the Son has life in himself. Like Father, like Son. Now, we derive our life from God. We're finite. God is infinite. We, we describe ourselves in terms of time. We say, I was, uh, I am, I will be. But God describes himself, I am, I am, I am. You know, kids ask you, uh, who made God? You kids ever ask you that, huh? I tell them, well, if somebody made God, that person would be God. Our puny little tiny minds can't fully comprehend it. But Jesus Christ is claiming equality with God the Father in claiming to have life in himself. Notice also, he claims to have judgment in his hands. He has the power of judgment in his hands. Look at verse 27. And he gave him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. The Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Why? Because... He's the son of man. Hold your finger here, would you? Go to the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. If you're new to the Bible, find Psalms. It's right in the middle of the Bible. And scan to the right of Psalms. And before too long, you will hit Daniel. And go to the 7th chapter. This is important, this term son of man, because it appears 12 times in the Gospel of John, 80 times in all four Gospels. But you need to understand its original meaning, and as Jesus uses it, what he is actually claiming. Now understand there's only one place in all of the Old Testament where the term son of man is found. 
Daniel chapter 7. Let me set it in the context, follow the argument, and I think you'll see the power of the statement that he's making to these people who are listening to him. Daniel 7, verse 9. Daniel writes as he's given this vision, I kept looking until thrones were set up. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands and thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Now, by the way, this is the only time in all of the Bible where God, and it's a reference to the Father, as we'll see in a moment, is referred to as the Ancient of Days. You know, we sing that song, Ancient of Days, you know it. That is a designation given to God the Father. Now, when the Mormons show up at your door and they show you a picture of God the Father, so here's God the Father, let me flip the page, here's God the Son, and understand, God does not have a human body. And yet he is described in human terms in this vision. Why? Because God wants to describe to us what he is like. And so in the scripture, metaphorically, it speaks of the eyes of the Lord and God's arms and God's feet and God's face and so forth to communicate certain truths about Almighty God. So Daniel has this vision of God the Father in human form so that by means of symbol, we can understand his holiness, his eternality, his glory. And by the way, this vision that he has of the Ancient of Days, God the Father, is virtually identical to the vision in Revelation chapter 1 that John has of the exalted risen Christ. And you would expect that because Jesus said, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Now look at verse 9. Let's step through it. He said, I kept looking until thrones were set up. As we'll see in a minute, a judgment is about ready to take place. God is getting ready for the judgment, and so the courtroom is being set up. And here there's a mention of thrones, plural, and then his throne, God the Father's throne, identical to the picture in Revelation 4, where you see God the Father sitting on a throne and 24 thrones around him. And the scene corresponds perfectly with those two chapters where Revelation 4 and 5 blend God the Father on the throne in Revelation 4, God the Son on the throne, the Lamb of God in Revelation chapter 5. Now the Ancient of Days is really a beautiful description to describe the Father. We think of the term ancient as old, and it's just a metaphor to describe the eternality of God. Notice it says His vesture was was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His dazzling white garment in his hair is white as wool. That speaks of his holiness. So Isaiah says, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. White as snow, white like wool, speaks of purity, of holiness in Scripture. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Now, God is often pictured in the Bible with fire because it pictures his wrath against sin. Now, most non-Christians can quote 1 John, God is love. But they can't quote Hebrews 12. God is a consuming fire, which speaks of God's hatred, for sin. I was reading in the Psalms this week, righteousness and judgment are the foundation of his throne. Fire 
goes out from before him and burns up his adversaries round about. God is not sitting on his throne, naughty, naughty, naughty little kids. No, he's angry. And he will punish sin. Solomon wrote, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of man among them are given fully to do evil. That is because judgment is not immediate, because you do not see it today, people conclude it's not coming. Daniel 7 and John 5 want to remind us an hour is coming when God will judge. Look again at verse 10. A river of fire was flowing out and coming from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. A myriad is a mathematical term. It means 10,000. Somebody asked me during our last course in angels, how many God, angels did God create? I said a whole lot. Myriads upon myriads. 10,000 times 10,000 as the NIV paraphrases it. Furthermore, we learn from verse 10 that when Daniel saw God the judge take his seat, the court is convened and the books were opened. Now in this context, of course, he's judging the Antichrist. First half of the chapter deals with Antichrist. The second half with Christ. But as the book of Revelation tells us, what applies to Antichrist will apply to every lost, guilty person. No one will escape. I know today criminals are turned loose because they get off on some technicality. Or maybe there's not a reasonable amount of evidence to convict them. Or sometimes the evidence that's been given was given in a faulty fashion. Or maybe they tapped your phone when they shouldn't have been and and they get away with it. I want to tell you, no slick lawyer will be able to get anyone off in this day. And I don't know how much how you feel about it, but I know this much, that God's evidence is not going to be thrown out of court. And God's been tapping your phone. He's been reading your mail. He knows everything about you, every thought you've ever had, every deed you've ever done. And the books were opened. You know, God has a library. The Bible speaks, frequently speaks of God's ledgers, God's books, and everything that every fallen sinful man has ever done. Or you may have pulled off some adulterous relationship and your spouse never knew it, but God wrote it down. He saw every act of thievery, every lie, every deed of murder. And God wrote it down. Oh, but I might remind you, it's not in this passage, but there's the book of life. And in it are the names of all of the forgiven saints of God. But God is documenting the deeds of the unforgiven because the Bible teaches they'll be judged in hell according to their deeds. Now drop down to verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the ancients of days and was presented before him. By the way, this is the only place, again, in all of the Old Testament where the term Son of Man is used. And every Jew knew that it spoke of the coming Messiah. Verse 14, And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What we find in this portion of the vision is that he is the one, the Son of Man, who will carry out the judgment. The Ancient of Days decrees that the Son of Man will judge. It's identical to what we're studying here in John chapter 5. Now, by the way, this term Son of Man, 
was a phrase that was used to describe the humanity of Messiah. That God would become a man. And so three titles are given of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He's called Son of God, which emphasizes his deity. He's called Son of David, which emphasizes his royalty. He's called Son of Man, which emphasizes his humanity. In fact, Isaiah describes, in essence, all three offices when he gives that great prophecy that we often hear at Christmas. A child will be born unto us. That's Son of Man. The government will rest on his shoulders. That's son of David. That's his royalty. And this child's name will be called Mighty Counselor, Wonderful God. That's his deity. And so for a Jew to mention one in their mind, all three went together. That's why when Jesus is there before Caiaphas, remember that, on his trial, and he puts him on her oath. And he says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether or not you are the Christ, the Son of God. What do you say, Jesus? Are you the Son of God? And you know what he says? Yes, I am the Son of Man. And what does he do? He quotes, in essence, Daniel 7. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus' claim are you the Son of God? Yes, I am the Son of Man. The two were indissolvable in the mind of a Jewish person. And so look at verse 13 in light of that. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. Verse 14, and to him the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. If you have the NIV, it says that they might worship him. Which is right. They're both right. There's not one single English word that can give both nuances of the Hebrew text. The NAS says serve him. The NIV says worship him. And by the way, it's a reminder to me of what real worship is. Oh, today we've made it so emotional. Our worship is when we come here on Sunday morning and we feel a certain way. No. Worship is all that you are and all that you do. It's how you serve God with your life moment by moment. Now go back to John 5. When Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, what is he doing? He's claiming to be Messiah. He's claiming to be the judge when the Ancient of Days entrusts all authority to him. And it's so it says, and he gave him authority, verse 27, to execute judgment. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. Which means he's God because like the Ancients of Days, he is to be served, he is to be worshipped, and like the Ancient of Days, he has the authority to judge. Hey, these cults, these liberals can take a verse here and there and try to manipulate the scripture to say Jesus never claimed to be God. You cannot do it with these texts. Three actions that he's going to take. He has the power of life in his hands. He has the power of judgment in his hands. Finally, he has the power of resurrection in his hands. Look at it, verse 28. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all, I have that word all circled in mind. Because it tells me he won't miss a soul. No one will miss hearing his voice. All who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. The Lord is saying, don't be amazed. Don't marvel at the fact that someday every buried man, woman, boy, and girl will hear my voice. 
and they will respond because he is the son of man. And just as now in this hour, he can give life to people, in that coming hour, he will give life to the bodies of men. Now, three things I don't want you to miss here. Some people have this view in their mind that there's this one big great judgment when God raises everybody up together at the same time. Christian and non-Christian stand before him. Not true. Very clearly in the New Testament, you see the Bema judgment for Christians. You see the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 to 15. No unbelievers are present. Understand it does not say the hour is coming. An hour is coming. And now is. Just as right now people are getting saved in new life, it doesn't happen all at once to everyone at the same time, but over a period of time, even so this resurrection won't happen at all at once. Now the chronology is detailed later in the Gospels. Paul will describe it in vivid terms to the Corinthians. But he's not speaking so much of chronology as he is reality. Not so much of the time of resurrection, but as the kind of resurrection. In fact, he says two kinds of people will be raised. Notice, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, first, those who did the good, the word deeds is italicized, telling you it's not in the original, but it's implied. Those who did the good deeds, the good de works, the, the good things, because as John chapter 3 tells us, those things come from being born again. Jesus is not contradicting what he's just said. He is not teaching you are saved by doing good, and that if there's more good than you do bad, then you'll make it. But he is affirming what he plainly said in the third chapter, that all those who are born again will come to the light to show that their deeds were wrought, that they started from the Lord. You say, can't lost people do good deeds? They do, but for a different motivation. They do it sometimes for the praise of men. They do it to become righteous before God, which God calls a form of rebellion in Romans, the 10th chapter. And so, therefore, not really a good deed. Listen, those who did the good, resurrection of life. They did good to the glory of God out of appreciation for their salvation because they had been born from above. A lot of people going around today say, I'm born again, and they live like the devil. How deceived they are. And those who did the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Now, understand two important truths. Really three. It's not all one judgment. It happens over a course of time. It's not salvation by works, but three, understand the body you have now is not suited for heaven or hell. It's not. God is going to raise people up. Paul says this mortality must put on immortality. He tells the Corinthians, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Hey, when Jesus comes back, I'm getting a brand new body. No more pain, no more weakness, no more sin nature, a brand new resurrection body. This body is not suited to walk on streets of gold. And just as this body is not suited for heaven... The body of an unbeliever is not suited for hell because one minute after a non-Christian dies, he's in hell. And it's a real place. It's a place, Jesus said, where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. 
If you were to step into hell, the body you have, you would instantly be consumed and it would all be over. So God gives the unbeliever a body as well, a new body, a resurrected body that will literally feel the torment of the flames of hell and will never be consumed. I don't know why people come here on Easter sometimes. Because just as Easter promises that I will get a new body, it promises they'll get one too. Some unbelievers, I'm glad they come because I can shoot them full of Jesus. Maybe win a few of them to Christ. Now, God doesn't want any of you to go there. And if you go there and you spend an eternity in hell, it will be no one's fault but your own. Because God has made a way of escape, and it is through Jesus Christ. You have to decide today, is he a deceiver? Is he deceived? Or is he deity? There is no middle ground. You cannot say that he is just a good man or a great prophet. You should either stone him as a blasphemer or fall at his feet and worship and serve him as Lord God. It's the only choice he gives you. It's an important choice. It's the most significant decision you will ever make in life because what you do with him will determine what God will do with you. Accept him, and though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Reject him, and you will spend all eternity wishing that you had not. Let's stand together for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your love and grace and mercy shown us through the cross of Jesus Christ. For you so loved this world that you sent your only Son so that there on Golgotha, this one, a child who would be born, a child whose name would be called Mighty God, as Isaiah also said, he would be pierced through for our iniquities. There on Golgotha, those nails were put through his hands and his feet, that as the blood fell to the ground, just as those blood sacraments in the Old Testament symbolized and pictured what he would do in time and space, we thank you that he bore our sin and paid its debt. You promise that whoever will call upon his name will be saved. I pray today, Father, for someone who does not have the assurance that if this were their last moment on the earth, that if Christ were to come, that he would take them to heaven. Because of the completeness of his work, you said whoever will call on his name will be saved. Would you in simple faith come to this one who claims to be the Messiah of Israel and of the Gentile? Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me by your blood, I will serve you as Lord all the days of my life. Now, Father, help us as your people to honor Christ as Lord, to submit to his authority, to follow him without reservation, and we ask it in his holy name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 013. 
Our calling at Search the Scriptures is to lead unbelievers into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and to grow believers in that relationship. If you can help support this mission with a one-time or regular gift, please click the Give button in either the Search the Scriptures app or visit our website, searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.